Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. This week, we're going to have a look at the medium-term return outlook for investment returns. Now, starting in the 1980s, particularly the early 1980s, investment returns were spectacularly strong. Sure, there were bumps along the way, like the 1987 share market crash, but Australian balance growth superannuation funds returned an average of 14.1% per annum in nominal terms and 9.4% in real or inflation-adjusted terms between 1982 and 1999. And that was after taxes and fees. This was well above what would normally be expected from such funds. Since 2000, that is the year 2000, nominal super returns have been more constrained, averaging around 6.2% per annum as we entered a lower return world with real returns averaging 3.6% per annum. Mind you, this is still pretty good considering that one-year bank term deposit rates average just 3.7% per annum and only 1.1% per annum after inflation, and that was before taxes, whereas the super returns were after taxes. The odds are that returns are likely to be even more constrained over the next 5 to 10 years. This week, we take a look at why. But first, let's have a look at what drove the strong returns from the early 1980s. Of course, there was an element of mean reversion or payback after the very poor returns of the high inflation 1970s. But fundamental drivers were a combination of economic rationalist policies such as deregulation, privatisation, competition reforms, tax reform and free trade, all designed to boost the supply side of the economy after the dismal 1970s inflation and low productivity experience. Another factor was globalisation, which boosted trade and competition and lowered costs. Easing geopolitical tensions with the ending of the Cold War in 1989, which led to the peace dividend of reduced defence spending, also helped. And of course, easing geopolitical tensions went hand in hand with globalisation. At the same time, there was a corporate focus on return on capital. Not so much growing market share or employing more people or growing sales. The focus was increasingly solely on return on capital. What's more, we had very positive demographics as baby boomers entered their stage of life where they saw peak consumption and peak productivity. On top of all this, we had inflation targeting by independent central banks, particularly as the 1990s wore on, and they had a focus on keeping inflation and inflation expectations at low levels. And finally, through the 1990s, we had the tech boom. Taken together, this drove low inflation and strong productivity growth through those two decades, which underpinned a secular bull market in shares, which of course are the biggest exposure in balanced growth superannuation funds through the 1980s and 1990s. Of course, it paused in the US after the tech wreck through the GFC and of course then took off again from around about the year 2013. But of course, through the 2000s, a well-diversified Australian-based investor would have got the benefit from very strong returns from Australian shares through that decade as a result of the resources boom at the time. And of course, since 2013, and as we went through the last decade into the pandemic, share markets and returns generally were boosted by very low interest rates in the run-up and into the pandemic, which of course pushed up the value of shares and other growth assets. Meanwhile, of course, bond returns were high given their high starting point yields in the early 90s. 
1980s. If you buy government bond on a yield of 14%, you'll get 14% for, say, 10 years. And of course, that was the story starting in the 1980s. It hasn't been as good lately, but nevertheless, it did have a very strong starting point for government bonds. But unfortunately, the drivers of the strong returns of the 1980s and the 1990s are now starting to reverse. There are five big mega trends of relevance here. First one is bigger government and less economic rationalist policies. As a result of the problems highlighted by the GFC, rising inequality, stagnant real wages, aging populations, climate change, the success of government income support measures through the pandemic, the rise of populism and a collective memory loss regarding the lessons of the past few decades, there is a bit of a backlash going on against economic rationalist policies and more support for big government involvement in the economy. This is evident in Australia, for example, in the rising share of government spending in relation to the broader economy, widespread support for higher taxes and labour market re-regulation. The risk from this is that productivity growth will be lower and inflationary pressures will be higher. Secondly, we are seeing the reversal of globalisation. The post-World War II period saw a huge surge in global trade and financial links between countries as more countries entered the global trading system and trade barriers collapsed. This saw production allocated globally according to comparative advantage and highly integrated global supply chains. The costs, reductions and competition flowing from all of this helped reduce inflation. But the trend towards freer trade stalled in the 2000s and trade barriers are now on the rise. The pandemic, rising geopolitical tensions and rising nationalism are accelerating this shift away from globalisation. Support for free trade policies has faded in favour of things like friendshoring, where you mainly get your exports from your nearby friends, onshoring and old-fashioned protectionism to support manufacturing locally. For example, uh, there are globally, if you think about it, now big programs subsidised by governments to encourage the production of batteries um, or electric vehicles locally. Inevitably, this will lead to higher costs as production is no longer allocated globally on the basis of comparative advantage. Thirdly, we are seeing increasing geopolitical tensions. In other words, some are even talking about a new Cold War. Declining military spending, particularly through the 1990s into the 2000s, was disinflationary. This was facilitated by the move to a unipolar world dominated by the US and increasing belief in free market liberalism. This started to fracture after the GFC, and we are now in what is often referred to as a multipolar, less stable world, with arguably a new Cold War between China, Russia and Iran on the one hand, and Western countries on the other. The war in Ukraine and now Israel are arguably signs of this. This adds to the threat to free trade, but also risks increase military spending. This means more demand for metals and more government spending, which will add to inflationary pressure. Fourthly, we are seeing climate change and decarbonisation. Ultimately, the shift to sustainable energy could result in lower costs because the cost of producing energy through sustainable means like wind and solar is collapsing relative to the cost of producing energy via fossil fuels. But we're a long way from that point just yet. And climate change and the move to net zero will add to costs and inflation via extreme weather events associated rebuilding and higher insurance premiums, the costs of mitigation, increased metals demand as economies retool and increased pollution regulation. And finally, we are seeing significant demographic change, particularly involving less workers as working age populations decline and more consumers. Global population growth is slowing, while in advanced countries in China, the working age population is in decline. And populations are ageing, resulting in a rise in the ratio of children and older people to working age people. Thanks to its high immigration program, in Australia is in a somewhat better position. But globally, the upshot is less workers, in other words, constrained supply, and more consumers, more demand, which will add to inflationary pressures. Taken together, these key five megatrends risk lower 
lowering productivity growth, making economies more inflation-prone. There is some offset, of course, with technological innovation, with artificial intelligence offering significant potential to boost services sector productivity, although this will take time to materialise. But the more inflation-prone environment means central banks will have to work harder to keep inflation down, which will require higher and more variable interest rates than we saw pre-pandemic. The collapse in inflation from the 1980s provided a tailwind for superannuation investment returns because the fall in interest rates and economic uncertainty allowed growth assets to trade on lower investment yields and higher price-to-earnings multiples, which of course all boosted capital growth. A more inflation-prone world will remove this tailwind and threaten its reversal, with cash and fixed interest becoming relatively more attractive, price-to-earnings ratios on shares settling at lower levels, and income yields on real assets at higher levels, which of course will all constrain capital growth. So what does all this mean for medium-term investment returns? Our approach to get a handle on medium-term investment returns, i.e. covering the next five to ten years, is as follows. For bonds, the best predictor of future medium-term returns is current yields. And in fact, the rise in bond yields over the last few years has boosted their potential returns over the next few years. For equities, current dividend yields plus trend nominal GDP growth does a good job of predicting medium-term returns. For property, we use current rental yields and likely trend inflation as a proxy for income and capital growth. The surge in online spending and work from home means significant downside risk to commercial property returns over the next few years. In the case of cash, we use is our current forecast for the cash rate over the medium term. Over the last few years, we've been putting together a number of projections on this basis and then collating them as to what they mean for a diversified growth mix of assets. The best time in terms of projected returns was back in, you guessed it, 2008-2009 when equity markets collapsed, obviously boosting their return potential. And of course, we got good returns coming out of that. Recently, those return projections had been slowing, particularly going into 2020 and 2021 as interest rates and bond yields fell and share markets had moved higher, reducing their attractiveness in terms of valuations. Starting in 2022, though, it started to improve again. And we're now seeing investment returns from a balanced growth mix of assets at shares and bonds of around 6.7%. And it's been around that level for the last year or so. Now, that improvement, if you go back to around 2021, we were projecting around 4.8%. And that improvement has been a function of higher interest rates, higher bond yields, pushing up the returns from those potential asset classes, and of course, some capital losses on shares relative to their recent highs and similar for commercial property. So 6.7% is our return projection for the next five to 10 years. After allowing for taxes and fees, of course, this still implies pretty constrained nominal medium-term returns for balanced growth funds. And our analysis would suggest that that's around 5 half percent after deducting fees and taxes, which is a bit below the average since the year 2000. This is still better than bank term deposit rates, which average up to 4.5% before taxes and makes no allowance, of course, for any value added from active investment management. Of course, the main downside risk is that inflation trends higher, driving a further trend rise in interest rates, bond yields, and yields on shares, property and infrastructure, resulting in an ongoing drag on capital growth. But the bottom line is that our return projections on a nominal pre-tax and fees basis are around 6.7% for the next five to 10 years. After taxes and fees, that drops down to around 5.5%, which is a little bit below what it's been 
over the period since the year 2000. There's a number of implications of all of this for investors. First, the key is to have reasonable return expectations. In the past, superannuation returns were boosted well above what you would consider normal by very favorable conditions, which have now faded. Secondly, remember that there is no free lunch. Investment opportunities offering higher returns likely entail much higher risk. Thirdly, medium-term returns from superannuation are still likely to be well above bank deposit rates on an after-tax and fees basis. And don't forget, it's very important that those uh, favourable tax arrangements for superannuation are borne in mind. Finally, while bear markets are painful, they do push up the medium-term return potential of shares and so provide opportunities for investors. Bottom line from all of this is that returns over the next five to 10 years, what we call the medium term, are likely to be somewhat more constrained than they have been. We have entered a more constrained environment and a more somewhat more inflation-prone environment that we've been in, but returns from superannuation should still be reasonable. I hope that's been of some value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver and the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favourite streaming platform. 